Hey, Greg, who's on first? I don't know. Wait, what's the joke? Who's the joke? What? He's on second. Who's on second? Who's on first? You see now. No, I don't know. Well, that's third. What's third? What's second? Wait, who's where? I don't know. He might be shortstop or something. They never covered him. Who are they? It's a funny joke, and he's on first. Who's on first? There you go. No, I get it. It's unfunny. No, it is. Why aren't I laughing? Who aren't I laughing? What is the name of the player who is currently on first base? Joe DiMaggio. Live hey. performance beginning. Oh, hello. <laughs> Sorry, that was our countdown robot. Yeah, he's uh, not great. He bleeds into the episode sometimes. He's the only l- robot that bleeds. He won't stop bleeding. <laughs> Internal, external, all kinds <laughs> of bleeding. Not since the accident. <laughs> hello, Greg. Hey, Daniel. I haven't seen you in a month. Yeah, it's been a month since I've seen you. We were discussing uh, trolleys or something. I don't know. I told you to take a long trolley off a short pier, and you did. <laughs> I told you to take a long trolley off the long wharf, <laughs> and it was enjoyable. I had a good time. <laughs> That's a reference that you'll only get if you listen to the last episode. So listen to it. Pause this. Go to the last episode. And if you still like us, <laughs> I can't imagine. immediately. <laughs> this is our 21st episode. This podcast can drink now. Oh, it can drink. And it's got a problem. Already. We are experimenting because it's our 21st episode. We're going to be doing a two-parter episode, meaning the theme is going to bleed over until September. That's true. It's going to bleed just like a robot with feelings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it has feelings too now? You programmed it? it? Yeah. Oh, I, I feel prog- really bad. Right before we started stabbing it to make it bleed, <laughs> I programmed it to feel. I've been mocking it for bleeding this whole time, thinking I could just practice on something. I haven't programmed it to make a retort yet, so that's why it didn't say anything. You, you slow down with that roll. You don't need to s- slow your roll is what I meant to say, and then I also meant to be polite. A lot of things Perhaps happen at once. you may be the robot after all. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm not computing that. <laughs> we decided to um, because the end of the baseball season is coming and you know we, we foolishly thought that we would have this around the same time that the Dodgers would be playing the World Series not knowing anything about how the baseball season works or you know even if the Dodgers would make it yeah. to the World Series this was our long shot that we'd get invited to a World Series party yeah and be able to drink out of the pennant <laughs> this episode we'll be talking about stadiums <laughs> a little Excited bit more yeah. <laughs> some of them have seats some of them have bleachers we're going to be talking about basically the history of baseball in LA leading up to the Dodgers coming to yeah. LA but more focused since Greg's going to be talking about the creation of Dodger Stadium the upheaval yeah. that happened to create Dodger Stadium I'm going to be talking about the stuff that came before but focusing more on the actual stadiums rather than the actual teams okay. because we don't like baseball oh come on I love baseball there's no history. crying in baseball Baseball. How can I play in a sport where I can't cry? <laughs> I wanted to do research on Dodger Stadium, and then of course meant that I had to do. Re- I didn't have to do. I was t- took the pleasure of doing. Research we don't on- have to do any of this. <laughs> we could have stopped twenty one months ago. <laughs> yeah. So of course I, you know, you have to bring up Chavez Ravine and and the area in Illusion Park, and then I end up doing more research on that than actual Dodger Stadium. But next month, if I can allow, if I'm allowed to talk about it now, the spiritual sequel to this episode. I will be talking about the history of the Dodgers next month. So if you'd rather yeah. hear that, uh, I'll see you in a month. <laughs> Sit there quietly for a month. Baseball. America's pastime. God damn it. But in LA, who is on first? Did we already ask that? Please, God. (laughs) 
get started. So there were a lot of assorted minor leagues on the West Coast, and LA was fortunate to be a part of pretty much every single one of them. Okay. There was one that was as major league as you can get in the minor leagues, uh-huh. but I'm going to say that one for when you're good and ready for it. Okay. So be good. Behave, and you'll hear. I have my cat transmit. My knees are bent, and I'm waiting for the... The pop. The pop. Shove it. <laughs> right? You got sports down, for sure. You were athletic for like a week in your life, and you got them all mixed up. And I threw up. Play puck. The first baseball game to happen in L.A. is believed to have taken place sometime in the 1860s at St. Vincent's College downtown, which was an ancestor of Loyola Marymount. Oh, really? Okay. There were college games like these and high school games, but an actual semi-pro minor league of sorts started in the early 1890s in the form of the California League, which consisted of an unwieldy six teams. One of these teams was called the Los Angeles Seraphs. Like the font? Yeah, they, they played against the... Hollywood times New Romans. <laughs> so the Seraphs, they soon became called the Angels. So they lasted only one year and they had no affiliation with the Angels that we'll soon be talking uh-huh. about and even less affiliation with the Angels that you're thinking of and little to no affiliation with the Heaven's Angels. Because there's who, no afterlife. Yeah. <laughs> because this is all there is. <laughs> After this, we're just in the ground and we decompose. That's why. That's why we play baseball. People. We play baseball on those grounds, too. <laughs> if you're lucky, maybe your DNA will be reincarnated to be a catcher's mitt. They buried me in center field. So, bury my heart it was <laughs> on the foul line. So it was these Los Angeles Angels, though, that played the first night game on the West Coast oh, cool. ever in 1893 against the team from Stockton at a place called Athletic Park, which I believe was LA's first baseball stadium. It was uh-huh. located near 7th and Alameda downtown. Okay. Apparently, the concept of a baseball game at night was so novel that the players just couldn't contain themselves and they would come to bat holding broomsticks and umbrellas (laughs) and the umpire was calling the game while holding a bulldog on a leash. And get this, the game had to be put on pause for a while when the bulldog caught the ball in his mouth (laughs) and he would not obey the command to drop it. MVP! MVP! (laughs) Most valuable puppy. (laughs) I think that's an Air Bud movie. I think that's a joke in Bound Puppies. This was the real life event that inspired Air Bud. (laughs) Except he was was put in a dog fight later that year. It was very dark. Air Bud fights for his life. And loses. There's no afterlife. So another league popped up around this time called the Pacific National League, which in 1903 had a team in it called simply Los Angeles. Great. Which didn't even last for a full season, this league. Really making us look good with all that creativity there. Los Angeles. Wait till you hear some of the team names that come up later. I I purposefully put in as many names as I could because they're so ridiculous. Oh, God. Can we change the name of the podcast to any one of these names since yeah. it can't be Raygun Gothic anymore. Let's just call it Los Angeles. We'd show up we would, on we Google. Would certainly get noticed. A more successful league than this one was the Southern California Trolley League, oh, wow. which started in 1910. I don't know why exactly they called it the Trolley League, but I do know that the Southern Pacific Railroad did mm-hmm. sponsor some recreational teams in Arizona, so Huntington and Harriman might have had their hands in this. Yeah, because they're competitive to the very end. Oh, you got yourself a, a stick ball? I got myself a baseball. You got yourself a baseball? I got myself a... Women's softball? the only thing higher on the food chain than baseball. <laughs> I also know that this organization, the Trolley League, was considered a Class D league. <laughs> like Bad News Bear Class D? Yeah. Whatever league Airbud was in, that's... <laughs> Here comes some team names that were in the Trolley League. Them. The Long Beach Clothiers. Great. The Santa Ana Walnut Growers. Oh my God. The Los Angeles McCormicks. <laughs> 
Those four players, the McCormick family, they weren't very good. Grandma McCormick had a mean curveball. She's racist. <laughs> that's why it was mean. <laughs> they were the Los Angeles Myers. That's a name that'll come back up. The Pasadena Silk Sox. Oh. And my favorite, the Redondo Beach Sand Dabs. <laughs> what does any of that mean? What's a clothier? I think that's someone who sells clothes. Not someone who wears clothes? It, I hope they Someone who work. sells clothes, I hope, also wears clothes, <laughs> so sure. I don't know what a sand dab no is. Idea. It might be racist. It might be a crab or something. I don't know. I think it's when you have whoopee with the sand at the beach. A quick dab in the sand. In 1913, there was also the Southern California League that had teams like the Pasadena Millionaires. Oh, not, and, not popular. And the Long Beach Beachcombers. Redundant? Well, Redundant beach. That's more like it. The most important one of these leagues was the California State League, which was started in the 1890s, but by 1903 evolved into the Pacific Coast League, which is the one you'll remember. Okay. But again, I'm going to get to that. Okay. So back off. All right. I have a question. A, stop being such a sand dab <laughs> question. Are you going to bring up the Pacific Coast League? Please see the principal. <laughs> Immediately. So let's step away from the minor league chum for a minute and talk about the big boys that would come to LA long before the Dodgers betrayed Brooklyn. There weren't any major league baseball teams on the West Coast until halfway through the 1900s, mm-hmm. but there had always been nice weather here, so a lot of pro teams would come to LA to conduct their spring training. In 1907, the New York Giants played against that team from St. Vincent's downtown in uh-huh. three spring training games. In 1914, a park called Brookside Park was built in Pasadena near the Rose Bowl, and in 1932, they added Brookside Park Baseball Field. Just a year later than that, it attracted the Chicago White Sox, not the Silk Sox from Pasadena, the real real Chicago White Sox, and they came to have their spring training there, and they kept coming back every year up until 1950, with a couple of years off for World War II. (laughs) Just a couple. Just to relax. They just wanted to see Europe. Or Japan. What was left of it. So in 1938, you'll find this interesting. I bet. In 1938, the White Sox played Pasadena City college and Uh the Pasadena shortstop was a local boy who got two hits in that game that boy Jackie Robinson really yeah Jackie Robinson spent part of his youth growing up in Pasadena which I I had no idea so he was growing up playing in Brookside Park and he made such an impression on the White Sox who kept coming back every year that in 1942 they gave him a secret tryout at Brookside Park to see if he would fit in Mm -hmm. on their team but the league wasn't integrated yet so in the end it just didn't work out Wow. in 1988 Brookside Park got renamed Jackie Robinson Memorial Field but before that they filmed an episode of the Munsters there did anyone even play baseball in that episode you want me to watch every single monsters episode because i gladly will <laughs> i'm gonna do it right now we could shake a podcast about us watching the monsters guys guys you getting this guys everybody team hello <laughs> the other team from chicago had an even deeper relationship with la the cubs they first came to spring train at shoots park in 1903 really? which we talked a little bit about last week yeah but i'll get to more later on shoots park mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they came march 11th left march 23rd but not before playing a few games against the mighty los angeles lulus which is a team of little girls licking lollipops <laughs> they got renamed the angels a little bit after that uh, that's still little girls yeah. licking lollipops but they were dead now <laughs> so then the cubbies came back in 1905 and spring well, tre- full grown bears now the, ba- the, 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 the bears, bears. Yeah. that's how the bears came completely are the sport. bears just 
No, they're not. They're not just a like an elderly version of the Cubs, are they? <laughs> are the Bears a football team? Pretty sure. We should know this. We should call Chris Farley. We really should. Yeah, Robert Smigel's not picking up the phone for me anymore. <laughs> so they came back in 1905 and they spring trained in Santa Monica, but then they stopped coming for a while until 1917 when they actually started using Brookside Park also. Then in 1919, Chewing Gum Fiend and part owner of the Cubs, <laughs> William gum? Wrigley Jr., bought Catalina Island for $3 million. The whole island. What, 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 what do you mean? Like, he bought the island in Catalina? Yeah. Did he really? He owned Are you Catal- making this up? I make everything up on this. <laughs> no. he, he owned Catalina Island. That's the fair. whole thing. He grew chewing gum, gum trees. Yeah, chewing yeah. gum trees, chewing gum canes. Grew right. up. Yeah. And a lot of slaves. <laughs> yeah, he owned the entire island. You could. Those were the days when you could just buy an island. Off your fortune you made from making chewing gum. <laughs> so then in 1921, he gained controlling interest in the Cubs, and that same year brought them to Catalina as the new throne of their spring training rituals. The weather, of course, was always perfect, so they would exercise on the mountain terrains and run along wow. the goat paths, and Wrigley built for them the world's very first Wrigley Field, which was right near Avalon. The one in Chicago, Wrigley Field, is older, but it was still called Cubs Park at the yeah. time, Duck Cubs Park, but this one on Catalina had the same dimensions as the one in Chicago so they could train accurately. What, what a weird like enter the dragon-like team they would be if you had to take a boat to go to an island to play a yeah. baseball team. I've heard legends of, <laughs> of these tiny bears that play <laughs> baseball on Catalina Island. The hardest thing the is the chewing like, gum fiends fortress. Gum ghouls. <laughs> the Chicago gum ghouls. So the team being there brought huge tourism to the island of course and combined with the ease of Pacific Electric excursion trains yeah. taking you right to the harbor to get there and it was free to watch the inter-squad practice games on the team so everyone was going there. The Angels, I'll explain who they are soon, they would come to the island to play them as with the New York Giants sometimes. Okay. The actor Joe E. Brown, who's the guy who falls in love with Jack Lemon in Some Like It Hot. Okay. He would put together teams of movie stars in the 30s and come to the island to challenge the Cubs. Did you get names? Joey Brown, Wyatt Earp, Charlton Heston. Harpo Marx. Zeppo Marx. The Cubs would go on to the mainland every once in a while to play some of the minor league teams, but they just loved being on the island. And Wrigley loved it there too, and he loved the team. He'd invite them to his mansion to Mm -hmm. have barbecues, and Mm -hmm. he would take them on fishing trips. He would arrange mountain goat rodeos for their enjoyment. Wow. The slowest player on the team, he would hunt for (laughs) sports at the end of spring training. Unleash them all into the buffalo fields. He's going to bury you in a... uh, A chewing gum packet. Yeah, chewing gum packet. What's that? What's that silver wrap? For what's that material called? Help aluminum. Me. Aluminum, thank you. Aluminium? That, yeah, that's it. I saw an advertisement for it. <laughs> Anywho. So in 1937, this is also interesting. In 1937, a radio man for the Cubs came with the team on their annual spring training trip. And one day he went onto the mainland and took a screen test and decided he wanted to start acting instead of being a radio man. That man? Ronald Reagan. The actor? And I bet Jerry Lewis was with him, too. He was the general manager. Uh, Nice try, future boy. That Ronald Reagan, just everywhere, huh? He is everywhere. Uh, He's been everywhere, man. So the Cubs trained on Catalina until 1941 when the island was taken over by the military for World War II. My gum, my precious gum! (laughs) No, they'll find my cachet! (laughs) 
can't imagine the people come in here with their helmets and they're chewing everything. We'll lure the Japanese into Bubblegum Cove. <laughs> Since they ha- didn't have this island anymore, they had to settle for Indiana during those years. The spot-on replica yeah. of Catalina. The sucking candy capital of the world. <laughs> so they came back in 1946, but from then on, the weather on Catalina wasn't as good as it used to be. And then in 1951, it started snowing when they were there. So they figured, that's enough of this place. <laughs> it's time to move on. So they eventually settled on Arizona for their spring training. But while those facilities in Arizona were being built, they wanted to return to Catalina one last time in 1966. The plans fell through, so they had to play at Blair Stadium in Long Beach instead. Blair Blair. Stadium. Can we get a good hot dog around there? (laughs) Sitting there on stone steps, cold, door to park. Listen, I've never been to Blair. I don't think it exists anymore. Good. The field on Catalina is no more. It's now the Catalina Island Country Club, but plaque marks the spot, and the Country Club Clubhouse Mm. is still the original Cubs Clubhouse. That might have been the most confusing (laughs) sentence I've ever heard. If we went to the golf grounds and tried to play a game of the old Mm b-ball, what would they do? Well, they kicked me out because I'm Jewish. (laughs) And they'd put you to work holding the caddies. Holding the caddies, not even the clubs. (laughs) I can't even be a caddy. You have to carry the caddies around. You carry Mark around. (laughs) The other major league team to make a big impact on the city was the St. Louis Browns. The story of the Browns in LA Mm -hmm. was almost a perfect alignment of circumstances, but then they all fell through. So in 1941, there were serious talks to move the St. Louis Browns to play professionally in LA in the stadium where the Angels explain who they are soon okay we're playing and to boot the angels to the field of uh, boot the angels to the field that everyone has to settle on eventually blair stadium yet okay. again in long beach as their farm team unfortunately pearl harbor happened around that time and tension was high in la and then the battle of la just illustrated how tense of a place it was here yeah. so the deal just fell through they don't no one wanted to be here but then after world war ii burbank became a boom town so in 1946 the city built olive memorial stadium for sixty-four thousand. $425 at 1111. That's it. That's all the ones. Olive Avenue, right near the Talleyrand. The Browns weren't moving to LA, but they could at least spring train there. So in 1949, they did just that. The players would stay across the street from the stadium at the Olive Manor Motel, and the growing local population was very into it. The St. Louis Browns are considered by many people to be the worst team ever to play baseball. How bad do you have to be for them to consider you the worst team? You have to practice in Burbank. That's how bad you have to be. But the Burbank nat- closes at 4 o'clock. <laughs> the beautiful native citizens of Burbank didn't care how bad they were. They don't know better. They were just so busy getting early bird breakfast. <laughs> so Olive Stadium could seat 1,000, but sometimes up Upwards of 30,000 people would How? come to watch the Browns. I, I'm, they were like on the shoulders of the players. I don't know where they were. <laughs> they loved them so much that sometimes they would refer to them as the Burbank Browns. But for whatever reason, nobody tried to reboot those negotiations to move them here. And in 1952, that was the last time they came to train. I think the St. Louis Browns are like the Baltimore Orioles or something like that. Okay. I don't know. Sure. I don't this know. isn't Baltimore meekly. So the stadium itself went on to be used as a practice center for the Rams. But in 1989, it was closed for use and demolished 1995. All that remains of it is its World War II memorial plaque. Again, plaque marks the spot. I'm finally going to tell you the stories of LA's two big minor league teams. So these were not merely professional teams that spent a few pleasant weeks entertaining the locals in town every year, only returned to their cities that were as cold as their hearts. (laughs) These were LA's teams. So one of these was the local favorite that was no stranger to winning and went on to have a happy ending. The other was the underdog that only rose up momentarily and never really amounted to much. I love that movie you just described. The LA Meekly of teams. 
<laughs> it's the plot of Airbud Three. <laughs> We're actually sponsored by Airbud Three, the Budcast, most valuable podcast. Let's start with the former successful one because nobody likes an underdog. Yeah, their story begins back yet again at Shoots Park, which to recap was an amusement park opened in 1887 that was bordered by Grand on the west, mm-hmm. Maine on the east. Washington on the north and 21st on the south. Listen to our last episode to hear more about that place and thank us for doing so. In 1900, a baseball diamond was built there and in 1903, a team with no affiliation to the team from the 1890s of the same name that I already talked about set up home base there as the Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast Everybody League. wanted that name. Nobody's very creative in the sports world. No, they didn't get a BA in creative writing, you know what I mean? Daniel. The baseball diamonds seemed like a nice place to be. And after the games, the center field wall would open up and everyone would file into the amusement park. <laughs> was this like a novel? This is like a like baseball teams and circuses and the carnival. Like it's all it, like a novelty or what? No, I mean, they were an actual team. It was just like, well, they're here. We might as well get them to play whack-a-mole. These angels won the PCL, as I'm going to call it, championships here in this park, 1903, 05, 07, and 08. The baseball diamond was sufficient for a while, but a new place that promised a better facility was opening up nearby called Washington Park in 1911, and the angels left Schutz Park for Washington Park, which was just a couple blocks west for the start of the 1912 season. So Washington Park was also used as an occasional spring exhibition game location for the Chicago White Sox, Uh and was also used as the site of many high school and college baseball, rugby, and football games. Did they have football back then? Yeah, it was called feetball. <laughs> plurals got abolished in uh, World War One. <laughs> yeah. We needed to use All them the for plurals rations. Died. It was immodest to <laughs> show their bounty after World War One. <laughs> we had to use plurals for bullets. So USC played three games there against Berkeley in 1915. We're talking football here, which is also the name of our sub-podcast. Yeah, We're talking <laughs> football here. <laughs> Did Airbud play football? He played. What didn't Airbud play? <laughs> My God. He Backgammon. Was the, he was the MVP. You know what that stands for. So the Angels won the PCL championships here in 1916, 18, and 21, which was the year that they were bought by a Mr. William Wrigley Jr., oh, the chewing gum fiend. God, the octopus. That was the same year he gained control of the Cubs. Okay. So after a dispute with the owners of the park over some sort of parking situation, Jesus. Wrigley pulled his team from Washington Park in 1925, which got raised later that year and is now the Los Angeles Trade Technical College. Hey, Trade Tech. And he plopped them into the city's first true baseball stadium Wrigley Field. So the place on Catalina was the first baseball field to have the name Wrigley Field, but this was the first stadium to bear that name a full year before the one in Chicago changed its name to Wrigley Field. Suck it, Chicago. Yeah. 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 Put then your deep dish and slice it. <laughs> Our Wrigley was in South Central, bordered by San Pedro on the west, mm-hmm. Avalon on the east, 41st place on the north, and 42nd place on the south. That is deep. Deep that south. Is deep. <laughs> so it cost $1.5 million to build, which is about $13 million in today's dollars. Yeah. It could hold 30,000 people, and it was completely fireproof. <gasps> Fire doesn't purify. Not this. There's no purifying in baseball. <laughs> so as per Wrigley's wish, there were no ads or billboards anywhere to be found Ooh, in this stadium. The out, yeah, the well, pff, come on. It's Wrigley. it's Wrigley. He's got gum money. The outfield wall was just a plain red brick which turned out to be too rough on the outfielder's shoulders when they had to jump up against it. So they started growing ivy on it just like the Wrigley Field oh, of yeah. Chicago. Another quirk of the stadium was that the outfield fences were slightly angled towards home base which led to there being an unusually high number of home runs that were hit in this park which was convenient for the people living in houses that were very close to the stadium stadium in the area who were constantly having their windows broken. (laughs) 
It's a pleasure. Wrigley. It's okay. I got I got gum money. I'll pay for your window. <laughs> I have gum wealth. Maybe Wrigley will sponsor this episode. Wrigley Field's most distinguishing feature was its 12-story, 100-foot-high clock tower. And as we learned last month, nothing in the city could be built at this time over 150 feet high. So this, in addition to the subway terminal building that was built the same year, was one of the highest man-made points in the city. The tower was dedicated the Wrigley Field Memorial Tower on January 15, 1926, in honor of the baseball players who had fought in World War One. So all of this combined with the stadium's observation platform where we could look one way and see the mountains and then turn around and see the ocean, it was really considered by a lot of people to be the nicest stadium in the country, period, major league or really? otherwise. So the Angels played their first game here September 29, 1925, winning 10-8 against the San Francisco Seals. They were actually Navy Seals. <laughs> they were a tough team. That's the most baseball statistics we're really going to get into in this oh, game. Man, I wanted to hear about RBI. <laughs> Did someone say my nickname <laughs> when I was younger? So the Angels had a good run at Wrigley and solidified their reputation as the best minor league team out there with championships in 1926, 33, 34, 47, and 56. Oh. They even had the best record in PCL history in 1934, winning 137 games and losing only 50 of them that year. Wrigley was so nice that the Angels just couldn't keep it for themselves, so it was used for a lot of other notable teams and events as well. Every mid-March, whenever the Cubs were still training on Catalina, Wrigley would, like I said, ship them onto the mainland for exhibition games against the Angels, Mm -hmm. repaying the favor that they came to Catalina. They were so generous. (laughs) And the Angels would actually beat the Cubs when they would... Not in, not in the game. <laughs> in the street. They're, here, they're off the island. They're not under Wrigley jurisdiction. The New York Giants came to spring train here at Wrigley in 1932 and then again in 33. But then the Long Beach earthquake hit when they were here and they were too scared to come back. I totally understand. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So in 1936 up until 1943, the PCL set up their official headquarters in the offices at Wrigley. Mm-hmm. On January 15th, 1939, the New York football Giants played the All-American Stars in the first ever Pro Bowl game at Wrigley Field after the Coliseum denied them access because they wouldn't allow pro teams in it. On April 17th of that same year, Joe Lewis had a boxing match at Wrigley. Lots of pro teams had exhibition games against each other at Wrigley as well. On Mm -hmm. March 20th, 1949, the Cleveland Indians played the Cubs. 1951, the New York Yankees came to Wrigley to play both the Angels and the Stars, who we'll get to soon. Mm -hmm. In this game, where the old PCL veteran... Joe DiMaggio <laughs> getting ready for his last season in the big leagues and also a young kid named Mickey Mantle getting oh. ready for his first season in the big leagues Look he at was that. at this Wrigley Field then in 1955 the Cleveland Indians again played there against the New York baseball giants after they finally got over their fear of earthquakes took them 20 years so on May 26th 1963 Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech at Wrigley in front of 35,000 people so being the nicest stadium in LA it was used in a lot of TV shows and mm-hmm. movies as well the original Angel Angels in the Outfield was filmed there. Oh, really? As was Pride of the Yankees, Damn Yankees, an episode of The Monsters, and the Twilight Zone episode, The Mighty Casey. Okay, I know that one. Yeah, that one. Mm, I never did the one with the pig faces, right? There was time now. There was that one. <laughs> There's time. We got a whole other inning. Maybe most importantly, a 26-episode TV show called Home Run Derby was filmed Jesus. at Wrigley in 1959. It was professional players would come hit home runs for cash. So Hank Aaron won $12,000 over his six appearances on the show. This TV show was the inspiration for the 
home run derby, which is now a staple of oh, wow. the Major League Baseball All-Star Weekend, started doing that in 1985. Was it, was it a fictional show? It would really be Hank Aaron, and then it would, he would hit a ball, but it would be a cartoon of a baseball going out <laughs> the stadium. Oh, boy, I'm going four. That's $1,000, <laughs> Mr. Aaron. You could trade that in for four sticks of gum. Chew Wrigley. <laughs> but still, the main attraction at Wrigley Field was the Angels, The delightful little angels. They had a huge fan base that was passionate about their team. After the umpire made a bad call at a game in 1952, the fans rioted and started throwing cushions and ran on the field. They don't really get riots. Mm, Well, one guy started wrestling the umpire. Okay. The umpire. The umpire. He was a rebel. It was a doubleheader, so the next game that day had to be monitored by a very large police force. (laughs) The LA Railway Week Pass tickets had ads printed on them to go watch the Angels. That's awesome. But as popular and successful as the Angels were, there was always another team watching enviously in the shadows. I can't believe it and I refuse to listen. The malnourished Mets to the mighty Yankees. (laughs) It all started with a team called the Vernon Tigers Uh which formed in 1909 in the California League but joined the PCL once the California League failed. If they ever got in a movie it'd be called the Pride of Vernon which is something that people from Vernon have never heard before. No. Best thing to come out of Vernon is True Detective Season 2. You're speaking of Vinci. Go ahead. Am I? I don't really know. Uh, They were located in the weird suburb of Vernon because at the time LA was a dry city and Vernon was not. And I'm not talking about a drought unless you're thinking a drought of alcohol, in which case you're correct. (laughs) The owner of the team was a meat packer named Peter Meyer who built regular meat packer. This guy, your average meat packer (laughs) who built for the team a place called Meyer Fields, which was near the intersection of 38th and Santa Fe. It was sometimes called Vernon Park and was Mm -hmm. conveniently located next door to a place called Doyle's Tavern, which also, along with a place you talked about last week at Shoots Park, claimed to have the longest bar in the world. Here we go with the competition again. The competition of things we don't know what they mean. Yeah, and like, what does it mean? <laughs> People were competing for something that obviously did not make it past that year. Because no one knew what it was. It was up for grabs. Yeah, we have the longest bar. What? <laughs> All right. We, so do we. So there was a door going directly into the tavern from the left field oh, wall wow. that the crowd would enter from at the start of the game and then leave from at the end of the game. There's even word that some of the players would go through that door to get a beer in between innings. Okay. Not many people were coming to watch the Tigers and Vernon because they were drunk all the time. So in 1912, <laughs> the meat packer moved the team <laughs> to another place in the area where you could legally buy and sell alcohol, Venice. Okay. They became known as the Venice Tigers and Meyer, the meat packer, built the them, built them a place to play there around Venice and Abbott Kinney near where the library is now in the okay. Venice of America Centennial Park. Sensei. The Sensei Park. <laughs> Yeah. It was a drive-in ballpark with room for 80 cars. What does that I'm mean? Not sure, I'm not really sure what that means. That means you stay in your car and watch, but how is that possible? They're not projected. Unless you, the parking is elevated and you're facing down with your parking brake on, which I don't know if cars at the time could do that. No, you, they couldn't. They didn't have brakes. Maybe it's like a drive-through where you have to wait in the line and you get like a glimpse of it for a minute and then you have to just pass yeah. on. Yeah, what that, does that even mean? That, no, that's what it is. <laughs> no, you, you figured it out. Stop talking. You figured it out. The Tigers would also get to play at Washington Park when the Angels were out of town, and the first game at Washington Park was actually a Tigers game versus the Boston Red Sox on March 11th, 1911. Yeah, I know, against maybe the worst team that LA had. (laughs) So still people cared even less about the Venice Tigers than they did about the Vernon Tigers, so the Meatpacker Meyer figured they might as well move back to Vernon. Pack some meat. Pack them up as if they were meat. So after the 1915 season, he literally put the stadium on wheels and drove it back to Vernon. What is it? What? It was a drive-in stadium. We don't know. I do not get it. 
know what that means. You're right. It'd have been right. inflatable. <laughs> it's a moon bound. <laughs> so he drove it back to Vernon, where they once again became the Vernon Tigers. In 1919, the meatpacker had had enough of the tigers, so he sold them to a one Mr. Fatty Arbuckle. Are you serious? Yeah. Who the gu- actor. The actor who guided them on to win their first ever PCL championship in 1919 and 1920. In 1920 as well, the Tigers became official cohabitates with the Angels in <laughs> Washington Park. That's your movie. That's the pride of Vernon. Fatty, Fatty Arbuckle. Arbuckle. <laughs> the pride of Vernon. It was a proud time for the underdogs moving into Washington Park until it came to light that several of the players had been found guilty of fixing the games oh. and their reputation, if they ever had any, was destroyed. Still not the worst scandal that Fatty Arbuckle would ever get mixed up in. (laughs) After a while, nobody seemed to want to go to a Vernon Tigers game. So in 1925, Fatty sold the team and they were moved to San Francisco to become the San Francisco Missions. But you haven't heard the last of the old Vernon Tigers. Oh no, they don't give up because they're Tigers. Tigers never quit. I have the them. For now, a team came in to fill the void of being the required inferior local team to the Angels. So in 1926, the Salt Lake City Bees moved to LA to become the Hollywood Stars. Oh, okay. At first, they were sometimes known as the Hollywood Sheiks after the mascot of Hollywood High School, who in itself was named after the role that made Rudolph Valentino famous. Mm-hmm. He's dead. He's very dead at this point. Or is he? <laughs> yeah, he is. Rudolph Valentino. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're dead. Go away. Rudolph, go. Come on. Rudolph the dead-nosed reindeer. There's no afterlife. You forget yourself. You should be a baseball right now or a piece of chewing gum. They were also sometimes referred to as the Twinks, completely unironically. Only thin players, please, boyish. Please. Hairless as well. This was a strange sort of interim team for the Hollywood stars that you might know. This incarnation of the stars had no home of their own to play in, so they somehow managed a deal to share Wrigley Field with the Angels. Again, like, everybody just cling to the ankles of the Angels. Ankle Angels. The Los Angeles ankles. So they managed to do pretty well for themselves, and they even won the championship in 1929 and 1930. A rivalry was even formed between the Angels and the stars that seemed to reach a peak when a fight broke out during one of the games between the teams that lasted for an hour and had to be broken up by the LAPD. What? Yeah, they threw cushions at each other. (laughs) It went on for an hour because no one could hurt each other. A weird side note, in 1933, the stars spring trained at a place called Shell Oil Field, which was a field, not just an oil field, but also an oil field. It was in Long Beach, was surrounded by oil rigs, and cars would park around the baseball diamond to mark the foul line. It looks like a hellish place. It's really yeah. weird. It's like if Mad Max had a baseball team. If that's they finally what it picked like. up civilization, like we need yeah. some sports again. Yeah, let's kill. start with this. What do yeah. we do? Oh, kill the elders. Well, well if watch. you make it home, we kill you. The point of the game is to stay on second base the whole time. <laughs> Snap back to reality. No, things seem to maybe be looking up for the stars, and then the depression hit, and the stars fell. Shooting stars because <laughs> we shot them. <laughs> <laughs> they were all shot and turned into currency. There's no afterlife. Mm-mm. Not for a star. Not even for an angel. By the time you see them, they've been dead for like eight years. Anywho. <laughs> so they were always the lesser of the two teams playing at Wrigley, and their attendance wasn't great. And then by 1932, the depression was really starting to be felt, mm-hmm. and their attendance dropped in half. Then on top of that, the new owner of Wrigley Field and what seems to be because Wrigley died, yeah. and there's nothing left of him because he's dead. Uh, you so, mean you can't just keep chewing them and chewing them? Well, he did die, but he never lost his flavor. <laughs> 
<laughs> we just make fun of too many dead people. So in what seems to be an attempt to try to make Wrigley Field strictly for the Angels, this new guy doubled their rent to play there oh. to $10,000, which was not something that the stars could afford. Yeah. So in 1936, the Hollywood stars moved to San Diego to become the San Diego Padres, oh. who would decades later join the major leagues, yeah. and that's who's there now. Oh, okay. Same players, because uh, they don't die. This is where the old Vernon Tigers, now known as the San Francisco Missions, come back into the picture. So in 1938, after two years of groups in L.A. begging the team from San Francisco to move back to L.A., they finally relented due to their poor attendance up north, and the city once again had a baseball team called the Hollywood Stars. And this is the one that everyone remembers if you're 300 years old. So when they came back to L.A., they were bought up by a new owner, and things started getting interesting. Oh, good. Familiar man in the peanut gallery of Los Angeles history. An ostrich. (laughs) An ostrich wearing a monocle. (laughs) Mr. Robert Cobb, the owner of the Brown Derby and creator of the Cobb Salad. Who might have been a relative of Ty Cobb, super racist? Yeah, mega racist. Mega racist. Really? Robert Cobb? Yeah, he was an old Vernon Tigers fan, so when the team moved back into town, he snatched them up like a free salad that's a gross relic of the past. The problem was there was nowhere for them to play, so they had to run yet again to the protection of the angels at Wrigley Field. Bob Cobb knew it wasn't ideal because he wanted a place for the Stars to really come into their own and to also help pump up the rivalry between the Angels and the Stars, which benefited both teams. So in an effort to both try to raise funds for a new stadium and to also set the Stars on the path of being a more community-owned venture and branding them as the people's team of Mm -hmm. LA. For the common man. The The Cobb man. The guy who rides the yellow car all day. The kind of guy who, you know, he's not always on the red car. He takes the yellow car. (laughs) He gets it. So Bob Cobb led a few notable citizens of Los Angeles in on the fun as part owners. These people were George Burns, oh my God. Gracie Allen, uh-huh. where he went she had to follow. Of course. Barbara Stanwyck, <laughs> Gary Cooper, Cecil B. DeMille, George Stevens, Bing Crosby, oh my Walt God. Disney, and William Frawley. Oh, oh! they got Fred Mertz on the team? Imagine Fred behind the bench. I can only imagine him as an umpire. What are you doing? What are you doing there? That was the condition. Oh, I'll part on your team if I... Barbara Stanwyck. This was the time when people were buying up hot dogs. Like, celebrities were buying up hot dog stands. That's true. They had no class. I don't know. What's a worse investment? A minor league baseball team or a hot dog stand? This made them the Hollywood Stars baseball team, owned by the Hollywood Stars. That's how they sold it. So now for their new location, Bob Cobb entered into negotiations with the A.F. Gilmore Company. A.F. Gilmore was a farmer who in 1880 bought a 256-acre dairy farm in an area known as Rancho La Brea Mm -hmm. that is now the Grove slash Farmer's Market slash CBS. One day in 1900, he was drilling for water and he struck oil. Oh, jeez, the luck. He was a real-life Beverly Hillbilly who was already (laughs) in an area that was nicer than Beverly Hills at the time. (laughs) So his son Earl started the A.F. Gilmore Oil Company and turned it into the largest independent oil company in California. California. Eventually, the old Gilmore Dairy Farm got turned into an amusement area of sorts. Mm-hmm. On May 23rd, 1934, Gilmore Stadium opened with an exciting show of motorcycle races. Oh, cool. It could hold around 18,000 people and was located where the big parking lot of CBS now is oh, at, okay. uh, yeah, at yeah, Beverly no. and Fairfax. Yeah, that and, long gate. Yeah, the big gate. That used to be left field. <laughs> In addition to exciting motorcycle races, the stadium also hosted boxing, rodeos, and dog shows. But it was originally... And dog rodeos and, and dog horse boxing, boxing. <laughs> <laughs> but it was originally built with two things in mind football uh-huh. it actually housed la's first pro football team the la bulldogs yeah. and midget auto racings 
I'm shaking my head. You can't see me, but I'm shaking my head, denying that this is true. I thought the same thing. Not little people, though, but little cars. Get this. It was a weird craze of the 30s that was invented in L.A. in 1933 at Loyola High School. And at Gilmore Stadium, crowds would pack the stands every week to watch them go. Just when they crashed and 80 clowns come out? <laughs> out the trunk. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's... People were weird back then. There's Everything before like 1978 doesn't make any sense. Before Star Wars plays, nothing makes sense to me. It brought order to the galaxy, <laughs> just like the Empire, which was the position that William Frawley played. <laughs> also in this area were the Farmer's Market, mm-hmm. a Pan-Pacific auditorium, and a drive-in theater where the Grove now is. This whole oasis of pleasure was referred to as Gilmore Island. Oh. So the stars stayed at Wrigley for a year and then moved into Gilmore Stadium for about a week, which was a horribly place for baseball until May 2nd, 1939, their new home officially opened, Gilmore Field. So it was built on the spot where Gilmore had originally struck oil, which was just a little east of Gilmore Stadium, deeper mm-hmm. into CBS, but before you hit the park that's across the street. Oh, yeah, yeah. 7700 Beverly Boulevard, if you want to be exact, which I know you do. I'm Google mapping it right now. It could fit 12,987 people and was always referred to as very intimate. <laughs> the seats were right up against the playing field as a... Po- <laughs> Yeah. My nose against the... It was required that you get your nose broken. <laughs> Before you go. Yeah. It loosens it up so you can be the, as close as possible. Really get up close to the stars. As opposed to Wrigley Field, it was one of the hardest fields in the PCL to hit a home run in. They sold it as Friendly Gilmore Field. The stars did pretty well for themselves here, and their games were well attended by all the celebrities in town, including Lucy and Desi Arnaz, though it was doubtful that Fred would get them free tickets, the old <laughs> miser. In 1955, Jane Mansfield, the mm-hmm. same Jane Mansfield, who presided over the dedication ceremony of the Rocky and Bullwinkle statue the very same. was crowned Miss Hollywood Stars. We love her. <clears throat> I'm getting hot under the collar. The Stars even caught the attention of several major league teams. In 1946, the Stars landed an agreement with the Pittsburgh Pirates that gave a few of the pro players on their team to the Stars on oh. loan to help boost them. Wow. This only lasted for one season, but the Pirates did maintain a relationship with the team and used Gilmore Field as their spring training hub in 1940. Mm-hmm. Also in 1948, the Stars became a farm team for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Oh, wow. So a lot of players advanced into the major leagues onto the Dodgers, but being part of the Dodger network also meant that some of the best players from other Dodger farm teams got transferred onto the Stars and made them an even stronger team. They eventually cut their ties with the Dodgers in 1951, uh, and they figured they'd never run into them again. Yeah, never will they ever cross uh, the Rockies, yeah. the, the Rockies. North and the Mississippi. But then they bounced right back, the Stars did, and they linked back up with the Pirates and became their top farm team. One notable player on the stars was Joe DiMaggio's Joe DiMaggio, mm-hmm. his big brother Vince. Oh, okay. I know he had a, a little brother playing. I didn't know he had three There's three DiMaggio's playing baseball. Yeah, Tramaggio's. That was their restaurant when they all retired. <laughs> it was bought out by Taco Tia. <laughs> the Angels were traditionally the dominant team in town, but from 1949 to 55, the stars really started to dominate the LA baseball scene. Uh-huh. They even managed to win the championship in 49, 52, and 50. The Stars were also the originators of some notable contributions to baseball as a whole. They were the first team to drag
flag the infield after the fifth inning. Uh-huh. This was done as a way to artificially create a break in the middle of the game to get more people to get up and buy more concessions. Okay, smart. Hollywood. <laughs> they were also one of the first teams to adopt batting helmets in 1949. After all the deaths, there was no afterlife. Yeah, nothing. No, you might you- as well wear a helmet because, I mean, this is all you have. <laughs> a weird contribution that they had was that in 1950, they became the first team to replace wearing trousers with wearing shorts and long socks during games. Cowabunga. Cowabata? Cowabata bata swing bunga. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah, it looked embarrassing, but yeah. it kept, it helped keep the players cooler and it let them run faster. But like cooler. Yeah, I mean... Sunglasses aren't for the sun, they're for the cool. Thank you. They wore them at all day games for about a season, Mm -hmm. and then I guess they got made fun of too much, and they relegated them to just the weekends and holidays until 1953 when they grew up and they put their pants back on. But no matter how popular they became or how good they looked in shorts, the city was, as always changing by the early ending growing growing drifting (laughs) falling by the early 50s the old community-based group ownership system of the team was phased out and as the decade went on cbs had plans to build its television city on the land that gilmore stadium and field existed so it looked like the stars were going to be yet again without a home and there were plans to bring them groveling back once more to wrigley field oh my god but it was becoming clear that the dodgers were going to be moving to la and bob cobb knew that with a major league team permanently located located in town, people weren't going to be interested in minor league baseball anymore. Interest already started to wane once major league games started being broadcast on live national TV in the late 40s, and suddenly nobody wanted to hear the PCL broadcasts on the radio that were recorded hours after the game was already (laughs) over as recreations of the action that had already happened. Oh, what, people don't like that sort of thing? How could they not? Baseball, Uh, the radio show. And Vince DiMaggio hits it, and a giant dinosaur (laughs) swoops in. I swear it happened. Up until the 50s, these minor league teams were all the people on the West Coast had, so they were really thriving and the teams in the league really were just as good as most of the major league teams anyway. Plus, some of the players were actually making more than the players in the major league did. The PCL was almost a major league but it wasn't the major league. There were offers from Long Beach and Mexico City to buy the Stars, but in another weird, confusing twist, Bob Cobb sold them back to Salt Lake City, where the other team had come from... It's confusing. Okay. Where they became the new Salt Lake City Bees. It's not the insect, it's the grade level of their plane. Yeah, the B minuses. <laughs> Bob Cobb sold them to Salt Lake City and then he promptly buried his face in a salad. <laughs> their last game was on September 5th, 1957, with just 6,354 people watching, which is way below capacity. Yeah. The Salt Lake City Bees are still going strong in the PCL, which at this point is the second oldest minor league still around. But Gilmore Field did not have that longevity. It was raised in 1958. In September 1997, the PCL Historical Society, CBS, and the AF Gilmore Company dedicated a plaque to Gilmore Field on the wall outside of Studio 46 on the CBS lot where the field once stood. Again, plaque marks the spot. And it wasn't just the stars that were being affected by this. The Angels managed to last a little bit longer, but only by 10 days. And they played their last game at Wrigley on September 15th, 1957. This was the end of the minor league Angels. But like I said, unlike the stars, they managed to have a big league 
League ending. In 1961, Gene Autry resurrected oh, wow. the old Angels and they were baptized into the Major League as the Los Angeles Angels. They even got their own home back playing their first game back at Wrigley Field April 27, 1961. And because of the layout in that field that allowed for easier home runs to be hit, okay. they set a Major League record of 248 home runs <laughs> in one season that has since been broken by men on steroids. <laughs> they played one season there and then they moved into Dodger Stadium for a mm-hmm. few seasons. But by 1964, the city finally realized we don't always have to have two rival baseball teams. So they yeah. banished the Angels to the land of no return. Anaheim. Wrigley Field was voted to be torn down in 1964, and in 1966, the final nail in the coffin came when it was converted for soccer, and in March 1969, it was finally torn down for good. It is now the Gilbert Lindsay Recreational Center. So that was the end of minor league baseball in LA, courtesy of the Dodgers and Giants moving to California. That's all fine and dandy for white people. But what about the non-whites that were playing baseball? Is there such a thing? If I were mayor... (laughs) So while all this was going on, there was a whole other world of baseball going on that was primarily for the minorities Mm -hmm. who were being excluded from the major and minor leagues. Non-white teams were not allowed to play in PCL parks initially, so they had to build their own if they could. What seems to be the first of these was at 32nd and Long Beach in South Central that opened May 2nd, 1920 and housed the Alexander Giants, which was an all-African-American team. Mm -hmm. They only lasted for 142 games and then their stadium burned down. (laughs) So they stopped. Fire, fear, fires all. Should have had a Wrigley, which is also Wrigley's catchphrase. (laughs) That's also a threat. Should have had Wrigley's, boys. It covered all grounds. (laughs) Then came the Los Angeles White Sox, who Uh were ironically all black, and they picked up all the fans who had grown attached to the Giants. Uh They were alternatively called the Colored Mm All-Stars, the Colored Giants, or the Bearcats. I kind of like the Bearcats. Yeah. You don't like Colored (laughs) All-Stars? Why? It makes me think of when you do really good in class and they give you a star, but it's like red or purple. or A Colored All-Star. A Colored All-Star. This was in 1921, and they played at a place called Anderson Park at Anderson and 4th in Boyle Heights. That sounds familiar. Maybe. Great. <laughs> it might. I don't know what's going on inside your mind. This place soon came to be known as you White, programmed S- me. White Sox Park. <laughs> I told you to stop reminding me of things. White Sox Park, it came to be known. It was usually hard to impossible for the black teams to find white teams that would accept their challenges to yeah. play some games. But there was something called the California Winter League, which was basically a league made up of four all-white teams comprised of players from both the minor and major leagues who mm-hmm. would come out here to play and stay in shape during the offseason. But they would also be playing teams made up of African-American players from the Negro Leagues. Okay. Uh, again, not offensive. That's what they were that's called. That's what they're called. You pieces. The teams themselves were not integrated, but it was white teams playing black teams, which was a start yeah. of a race war. <laughs> Games like these took place between the LA White Sox and some of the Winter League teams at Anderson Park. A couple of Italian-American fruit vendor brothers named Whoa. Joe and John Peroni were fans of the Winter League, so they built a nicer place for these games to be played. Mm-hmm. It was called White Sox Park. It opened October 25th, 1924 was located at 38th and Compton again in South Central not far from where Wrigley Field was yeah. and it could seat 7,000 people it was the home stadium of the LA White Sox but it also housed other black teams like the Los Angeles Stars not mm. the Hollywood Stars yeah. the Monarchs and the Sons of Italy oh I like that the names are going to start getting weird from mm-hmm. here on out okay. the White Sox and the park itself built up a reputation and on weekends and holidays games would take place there between the black and visiting white teams such as Shell Oil White King. I don't like that at all. The Philadelphia Hilldale Giants. The Kudahi Puritans. Kudahi. Kudahi. 
What's Karahi? Karahi is an area near Downey. Okay, yeah, that's them. Okay. Unless, is Kudahi a place also? <laughs> that's also a place. <laughs> also the Torrance Blues. I like that. Yeah, there ain't no cure for the Torrance Blues, though. Because <laughs> I kept losing. <laughs> Very bad management. <laughs> One time a team of white all-stars was made out of the Winter League play the best of the Winter League players, to challenge the black White Sox. Yeah. I'm confused. And the White Sox beat the white All-Stars very easily. Teams from Japan would even come here just to play at White Sox Park. Really? Buster Keaton used to come to work out with the black teams on Sundays during their pregame warm-ups, and he would go around making the audience laugh. We all like Buster Keaton here. Fatty Arbuckle's questionable, but... Buster Keaton never did anything wrong. Tickets were 50 cents to go to games, and a lot of the proceeds would go to raise money for local South Central causes, like building a hospital and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Once the major leagues finally were integrated by Jackie Robinson in 1947, however, the Negro Leagues lost all their best players, so interest started to wane, and fewer and fewer games were played at White Sox Park until it was eventually demolished. The site is now the Ross Snyder Recreation Center. A challenger to the Negro League in town was... The Mexican League. Mm-hmm. That's way offensive for some well, reason. Well, I read the, the it. emphasis I that read, you put on it. On League. I read that it was also called the Spanish League or the Mexican American League, but I'm sure whichever one sounds most offensive to you is what it was really yeah. called. It wasn't even called anything. It was just a look. You ever gone to a uh, game? <laughs> These teams were part of the LA Municipal Leagues okay. for the most part, but some of them blurred the lines between being just a recreational league to being an unofficial semi-pro minor league team. The teams were formed by local businesses that would sponsor a team just to create goodwill in the community and mm. keep kids occupied and out of gangs and things like that, mm. which explains why they had names like the East Side Merchants, okay. Moctezuma, who oh. played in Downey Park, probably the best name, El Paso Shoe Store, <laughs> Wait, was this the sponsor of the team or the team? Both. <laughs> the answer to that question is yes. Oh, we got beat by 7-Eleven last week. Did you guys go to the fruit game? <laughs> So the El Paso shoe store played in San Gabriel. There was the San Fernando Merchants, Ortiz Fords, Aztecas, Santa Monica Los Tigres. Oh, I like that. Eastside Beer, Lucky Lager Beer, Alianza Mexican. Okay. Ornelas Market, Manuel's All-Stars, Jalisco Athletic Club, Eagle Rock All-Stars, Hawthorne Merchants, Coast Meats. So fish or fish were not allowed in this league. Coast meats. We beat the meats. A proud cry. <laughs> no one can beat our meats. Were they? Oh, Jesus. That was also a name of the league. The, the, team. the Jesus. The Jesus. Manuel's Jesus. There was even something called the Forty Six Club, which was a team made up of Mexican players that were over forty years old. Oh, that's cool. Most teams in the municipal leagues were Mexican, but there were many black teams, like some of the ones I just named, mm-hmm. and even Asian teams, like the All Japanese Los Angeles Nippons. Oh, okay, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Good for them. They let them off Terminal Island, so they formed teams like these because like the African Americans they were not allowed in most recreational leagues so they took matters into their own monos they formed organizations like the Asociación Deportiva Hispano Americana in 1927 which was started in LA by La Opinión and La Asociación Mexican del Sur de California in Uno Nueve Tristos (laughs) this period of time 
<laughs> we have to make an appendix for this episode. Yeah. You might want to consult your English to Spanish Bible, yeah. but don't look too much into it because this is all we've got, people. This period of time, which was the 1920s to the 60s, is considered the golden age of Mexican-American baseball, mm-hmm. and the best team that was out there, hands down, was right here in L.A. It started with a guy named Mario Lopez, <laughs> and it is the one you're thinking of. <laughs> he was from Chihuahua, where he played baseball and was actually drafted by the Cleveland Indians, oh. but his parents wouldn't let him because he was 16 years old. Eventually, okay. he moved to L.A. and pretty much devoted all his free time to becoming the godfather, basically, of Mexican-American baseball uh, scene. He started a team sponsored by the gas station he owned called Mario Service Station. Mm-hmm. That was their name. And he got the best out of his players because he would give anyone who had a good game free gas. Oh, that's nice of him. Not just a good motivator, though. He was a good businessman. He saw that the city's Mexican population was growing, but nobody was selling the sort of food that they liked and missed from the mother country. Mm-hmm. So in 1934, he opened the Carmelita Provision Company, which sold Mexican food. <laughs> Whatever you eat. With this, he started a new baseball team that would play in Fresno, Belvedere, and mainly Evergreen Park mm-hmm. in Boyle Heights, and they would draw huge crowds. Really? They would play on Sundays, and Lopez would give out free packets of chorizo to people <gasps> in the stands, and then after games, he would take everyone, players and fans, out to places like the Joker's Den or the Silver Dollar to get beer and tacos, and he would pay for all of it. That's crazy. Yeah, it was, that, it's, that's expensive. Hometown that's, hero. I'm going to shake Mario Lopez's hand if I meet him. <laughs> You're so brave. <laughs> the team won its first championship in 1948, and they officially rechristened themselves Los Chorizeros. Oh, oh boy. You don't like that? No, I don't like that at all. Is it better or worse than Carmelita Provision Company, the team? Any of these teams with innuendo is just, (laughs) I feel bad for. So in a league where most teams only existed for about one season, the Chorizeros lasted until 1973. Wow. And in that time, they won 19 city championships. They were so popular that their championship games were played at Wrigley or Gilmore Fields. They even occasionally played the Angels, I read. Mm -hmm. Teams from Mexico would come to LA just to play them, and then they They returned the favor and traveled to Mexico to play them. So they were referred to as the Yankees of East L.A. That's really good. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm surprised I've never heard of them before. You'd think that there'd be some sort of legend floating around. Have you ever heard (laughs) of the Chorizeros? (laughs) (laughs) You speak of the devil. Baseball and the Chorizeros in particular were a good thing for the Mexican-American community. Mm -hmm. The games were gathering places for families and friends, and it helped foster a sense of community. One such child in the stands of the Chorizero games was a young Edward James Olmos. Aw. Little Eddie. Yeah, Eddie Olmos. It also meant something to them seeing star athletes who were Mexican. Yeah. So these people who were working in the citrus fields all day for five or six days a week and going to these games and watching these great players who seemed like they could actually go somewhere with their talents other than just being a way to unwind watching these games since there was no TV or anything. Mm-hmm. It was seen as a way out for the younger generation. That's, that's cool. One man in particular, Baldomero Mel Almada, who was a local boy who had come from Mexico, played at LA High School, worked in the citrus fields, played for El Paso Shoe. <laughs> he worked his way onto the Seattle Indians of the PCL and got drafted in 1933 by the Boston Red Sox wow. and debuted September 9th of that year to become the first Mexican to play in the major leagues. Really? So an LA guy, basically. Hometown hero. Hometown chorizo. <laughs> Some people saw baseball as a way of folding Mexican immigrants into American culture. Some people saw that as a good thing. Some saw it as, you right. know, what are you doing, white person? Yeah. We're our own people. 
Are you talking to me? I'm sorry. Be oh, your own person. I'm just telling you, you know, be, be you. Be who you are, man. Mario Lopez. <laughs> just be, let yourself be a Lopez. It was also a way for Mexican workers to unite politically. These baseball teams were well connected to other Mexican communities since they would travel around the state to play so ideas could spread and bonds could be formed. In fact, a lot of these Mexican ball players went on to be the union leaders in the fruit fields. Oh, really? Yeah, so politicians started to attend the Chorizero games because they knew that getting the Mexican vote on their side was important. Wow. The players in the leagues looked out for each other. Since there wasn't a lot of money, a lot of the teams would share their equipment. A lot of the Chorizeros even worked in Lopez's factory and then went on to become local teachers, professors, community leaders, and activists. Really? So I guess what I'm trying to say is baseball's all right. It's okay. I'm glad you landed there. <laughs> Carmelita Chorizo is still around. I, I love that sign off the Yeah, the that, logo, that yeah. logo with the pig, that yeah. was the team's logo. Was it really? The pig holding a baseball bat. Yeah. I would love that jersey. That's, That's why it's holding a baseball bat. Yeah, he's not just beating meat out of a pig. <laughs> he did other things with that bat. That's fascinating. Thank you for being a... Amigo? All right. So I'm going to start talking about... We're talking about stadiums. We're talking about baseball. We're talking about Mexicans. I'm only going to talk about Travis Ravine now. I hope you're okay with that. Yeah, Are there Mexicans in it? Plenty. Is there chorizo in it? <laughs> Is there any chorizo left over for me? <laughs> to give some context before we move further, let's just place listeners in the area of Chavez Ravine, okay? In Los Angeles, 1958. Okay, so you know where Dodger Stadium is? Mm-hmm. There. Right I don't there. follow. In particular, there was a spot known as Stone Quarry Hills, which that's exactly where Dodger Stadium is placed. Although I've never once in my entire life heard that <laughs> phrase before, Stone Quarry Hills. Yeah, that was Travis Green, but also the areas surrounding Dodger Stadium where like Cathedral High School is off of Bishop Road, as well as Academy Road that leads you past the, the police, police Academy. Police Academy, and then you go to Radio Hill where that guy was chasing that guy with the rock. And then you go out of the bottom of the hill and there's Solano Canyon, which is at the bottom and it was cut off by the 110 freeway or else all that whole area would be connected still. If you look at pictures of Chavez Ravine, like that area right there, that looks, that looks like it's still preserved pretty well because it's hilly. They're really steep hills, and then there's houses built up leading up, mm-hmm. and then everything's cut off by Dodger Stadium, <laughs> which is where Mike Piazza lives. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> hey, good job, you remembered one. Thank you. I only remember him because he was on the Mets. His name sounds like pizza. Yeah, he's also a really good player too. Whatever. How is his sauce? And I don't mean how fast <laughs> he pitches. <laughs> Three hundred acres bordered by areas we now know as Echo Park, Chinatown, Lincoln Heights, and Angelino Heights. Okay. Like three miles away from downtown LA basically yeah. three miles it's that far yeah you know you have to go through Chinatown to get there oh no forget it forget that I'm not going through there through traffic <laughs> the area that would become Dodger Stadium was just dirt and hills when Julian Chavez came to town in the 1830s Chavez was a Mexican pioneer who would go on to serve with the first county board of supervisors and would serve three terms good for him he was born in 1810 in New Mexico and arrived in Los Angeles before it was his state when California was part of Mexico and was transitioning from being dominated by Spanish owned missions and then divided into ranchos mm-hmm. Consult whatever episode that was that we did that. All of them. I, every single one. Just of listen them. all of them and let us know which episode it is. Sleepy Pebble Town. Sleepy. Pebble Town. It's not confirmed, but many people believe that he came west with one of the many trapping parties, which were groups of men who would hunt small animals for fur trade. Uh-huh. Nice coat, by the way. They're small animals. <laughs> I need a lot of them, okay? And I couldn't get the eyeballs out. That's why they're all looking at you. The census of the city in 1836 listed Chavez's occupation as a laborer. He was 27. Around this time, he becomes interested in investing in real estate. And in those days, if you wanted to get yourself some land, all you had to do was petition the city council, which was then known as the Ayun Damiento. Yeah, you're like missing four letters, it yeah, sounds like. Yeah, That's my one Spanish lesson for everybody listening. Ayun Damiento. All you had to do basically was petition for land. You're like, all right. What's your skin color? All right. In 1840. 
1944, Chavez acquired 83 acres of land near downtown, which was soon to be called Chavez Canyon. And as soon as he began to establish himself, he became more involved in politics. In 1838, he served as the assistant mayor, which was his first political job. After he served his position, he nabbed up a couple more as councilman in 1846 and judge of the waters during the last years of Mexican rule over our region. I couldn't really figure out what judge of the waters meant, but I found out that judge of the plains, which was also a role someone could have and Chavez would have eventually, the duties of that were to settle cattle disputes and to see that justice was served between owners of livestock. So I guess judge of the waters is like disputes Aquaman. Between, yeah, between fishes. Yeah, but, yeah. You cut that out, catfish. No, oh, gee. But the baleen whale keeps encroaching on my... Yeah, fish. Coast fish, meats. Fish talk. Fish talk. Listen to our other podcast, Fish Talk. Fish talk. What was the other one we came up with? I don't know. Talking football, something. Something about something about Air Bud. In 1852, after California, and in particular Los Angeles, was now part of the United States and not under Mexican rule, Chavez was elected as a member of the first LA County Board of Supervisors at the, around this time, 1852. So Chavez petitioned for this land and received it, but after that, he didn't really do much with it. It was just sort of sat here. Long before people started to build homes here, the area served a lot of different purposes. The Keech tribe stayed in this area for some time. Served squatters. As, that's a dirty word in this tale. It served as a cattle ranch in some point, as well as a dairy farm. There were a couple of cemeteries uh-oh. Native American cemeteries? One was Jewish and the other was Chinese. So they are Native Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Jewish and Chinese, how'd they get mixed together? No, no, they were separate. Please, segregation was like complete. Even among Every, dead people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're just there. They're not, they're just, they're just pieces of dead meat now. It's not like their souls are going to intermingle. Yeah, just, just plots of dirt yeah. with worms. It's a corpse farm. That's all it is. Where do you think the, the meats got their meat from? <laughs> I read at some point that because of this, there was a time when this area was referred to as Cemetery Ravine. Hmm. And I wish I'd stayed that way. Yeah. I also read... And it would be called Cemetery Stadium. Oh. Ooh. Oh, that Los Angeles skeletons because there's no afterlife. Los Angeles skeletons. No, afterlife. Or the Los Angeles meets. I also read at some point that when the cemeteries were ready to move on to different areas, they both collected the remains out of the ground and then moved to areas like Whittier. But I also read the cemeteries themselves were eventually buried along with all the other parts of Chavez Ravine. So there might be a cemetery, ironically, buried underneath everything. That's not confirmed. We're going to have to go digging. Your shovel? I got my play shovel from the beach. (laughs) I'm all ready to go dig up corpses. (laughs) Yet again, I feel like this is probably the third time we've had to dig up a corpse in this. All right, pause it. We'll be back. Oh my god, that was a lot. That was a lot. His bones really crumbled quickly. I did not expect that. Turns out there is an afterlife. (laughs) They yelled. They screamed. We should stop putting people in the dirt. Praise Jesus. He was the center fielder for the coast meets. So Chavez Canyon was at some point also served as a county pest farm, which is where they sent all the Chinese and Mexican residents who were suffering from scourge after the smallpox outbreak of 1850 and 1880. So the pests, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Or pets, that's what I mean. Yeah, they could have called it a pox farm. They didn't. It was also referred to as isolation camp, or as I like to think of it, quarantine falls. But there weren't any falls. Maybe like temperature or heart rate. I don't know how smallpox works. (laughs) Victims of smallpox were usually transported to Chavez Canyon by a small black wagon known as Black Maria. And it was a real bummer to watch it coming because it was either like it either had somebody that you knew or it was coming for you because it was a small country. Black Maria is coming for you. There was a real bad outbreak of smallpox in the 1860s and actually affected many Native Americans in the area who would go pick grapes by the river. Of course. Got hit hard by smallpox across across the country. That's weird that like that was the disease. Yeah, that was it. And it didn't like affect. I mean, every, I mean, it, Chinese it and Mexicans. It us, too. Yeah, yeah, but... <laughs> but it really affected they them. They were really... had never seen it before. Yeah. Smallpox for us, big pox <laughs> for them. 
that's not nice. The pox on me. <laughs> big or small. Although it took, a, a like we just said, a big toll on Chinese and Mexicans, the Keech took the biggest hit from the smallpox, wiping out half their population. Oh my God. I know. And that's already a population that's been severely Dwindled depleted. down, yeah. It hit a peak in 1863 when 14 people across the city died in one day, which my calculations may be wrong, was half the population of the city. <laughs> <laughs> kind of scary, but you know, we already talked about the plague and how bad that was. So. Yeah. And nowadays, like 14 people died when we started this podcast because <laughs> they heard we were starting a podcast small pox podcast think small about pox it casts hosted by Airbud, the small pause cast. So three years into the new century of 1903, a tuberculosis hospital was established in Chavez Ravine, which still stands to this day, or at least the, the, the day this was recorded, the Barlow Respiratory Hospital. Oh no, I hate that place. <laughs> Do you really? It scares me. It's very scary. Yeah, I don't yeah, like it. It's incredibly spooky. Yeah, it's whenever very I have like... to go to your house and we somehow end up near yeah, there. I... Because I make you go there. <laughs> it's they, good for you, you say. It's. I mean, I'll get back to talking about it, but personal stories. Right there, they have the main lot of the hospitals which is great and it has a beautiful look to it and then across the street are just abandoned sleeping like <laughs> how like houses that just say like sleeping training centers or something along those lines no, no, and no, they just no. look like houses where people are murdered for fun <laughs> yeah. take him to the old sleeping place and cut his head off barlow respiratory hospital was set up in 1901 by dr walter jarvis barlow which sounds like a serial killer name <laughs> himself a sufferer of tuberculosis and he set it up to help angelinos with tb to get care that it needed now according to their original mission statement they were established to help those who couldn't afford private care and who weren't being served by another county hospital so i Kind of like good intentions. It still scares me, so shut it down. Shut it down. What are those trees thinking? Shut it down. <laughs> he purchased the 25 acres of the hospital with his own money and money donated from his mother-in-law, Mrs. Alfred Solano, who I believe Solano Canyon is named after, which is a street that runs through Chavez Ravine. Mm-hmm. Another donator was J.B. Lankersham, I'm pretty sure, of Lankersham Boulevard. The reason that this area was sought for TB and eventually became a respiratory hospital was because of the air quality and the natural surroundings of Chavez Ravine and Aleutian Park as a whole, which could be attributed to the recovery. Think like Abbott Kinney, like coming over here fresh air save his life if you haven't driven past Barlow Hospital I suggest you should it's around Scott Great, I told you already I have it's scary I'm talking to everybody else okay and you oh, better yeah. and listen you better nut up because we're going tonight I don't know if there's dead bodies there we're gonna find some <laughs> we're gonna make some if there aren't <laughs> leave the shovel bring the axe <laughs> my <tonight>. beach axe <laughs> it's for storming the sandcastles <laughs> bring me the finest wench sea wench coast meat <laughs> yeah, it's really neat looking. It's spooky. It's right off of Scott Road on Stadium Way, which is on the way to Dodger Stadium. There's been this whole push-pull thing for a while over the last few years. The Alley Conservatory is trying to save it, and other people are trying to close it down and trying to take the land, and it's probably going to become like a parking lot for a souvenir stand or something. It's a parking lot for the Dodger parking lot. <laughs> see it if you can, because it might not be there for very long. Yeah, don't see it. It's scary. During this whole century, however long it's been, Chavez Ravine served purposes, but it was still, like for the most part, a massive of just empty land that was close to downtown. It wasn't desirable to set up commerce in because it had steep hills. You don't want to have like a Chinese laundromat halfway up a steep hill, you know? Yeah, One book I was reading referred to the hills as hopelessly steep, which I agree. So the land was still being unused, so no one was quite going to stop any impoverished residents from trying to set up shacks around there, and that's what happened. Low to no income Mexicans began moving into these unused areas and building like these ramshackle homes. So there's three neighborhoods in Chavez Ravine. There's Bishop, Loloma, and Palo Verde. PV. Yeah, you from PV? They raised sheep and goats and pigs. There were peacocks here and there and no ostriches though because ostriches is like a rich man's game. Yeah, those are purely recreational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything else served a purpose. They grew corn and sugar canes. According to several sources, Chavez Ravine, which is now being did called... Did they grow bubblegum? Yeah, they did a bubblegum farm. If Wrigley catches wind of this, he will... Or rather, if one of his catchers... 
catch you into that. See what it is? See what it did? See what it did there? <laughs> Look at me. Chavez Ravine, which was it was now being called that, was closer to a rural Mexican village than like a neighborhood that was three miles away from City Hall. Why was it changed from canyon to ravine? They probably just started respecting the ravine that was there. I prefer canyon. You just like alliteration, I think. Yeah. How about Ramirez Ravine? Why don't we change it to that? Anyone named Ramirez around here? <laughs> no. Just the Night Stalker. It was the Mexican equivalent to what the Japanese had on Terminal Island. It was like this small bubble that existed for a while where this close-knit ethnic community created an environment that resembled their homeland. It was really special. Now, although the residents of Chavez Ravine... Similar ending to Terminal Island as Very, well. very similar. <laughs> very similar. Spoiler alert. I don't mean to ruin this for everybody, but Dodger Stadium was went up in Terminal Island. Don't ruin it. Did Dodger <laughs> Stadium get built? I don't want to know. I don't want to know. <laughs> although the residents of Chavez Ravine kind of lived in squalor, they had this sense of togetherness that made the experience splendid. Like the living situation made them closer it was idyllic now i listened to interviews and i read all these like first-hand accounts of growing up there and then playing in the Legion park and running to the river and goping around it sounds a little i mean quaint, I, quaint. it sounds quaint mayberry yeah, mayberry but really poor there's <laughs> 300 how much money they make there's 300 families living throughout the neighborhood in these years of chavez ravine as it was flourishing so you had this like first generation coming either directly from mexico or being here since it was mexico and then they were having children and then people were being born these mexican americans were being born right at chavez ravine so you know like life was growing even though life finds a way life finds a way no I was about to sing back to the future (laughs) (laughs) Marty found a way he impregnated his own mother he found a way alright so everything's going good for everyone in Chavez Ravine everyone's having a great time living like poppers (laughs) exactly so then things start happening in 1946 the city of LA's planning commission was beginning to look at ways to improve impoverished areas and they were conducting house to house visits Chavez Ravine not only suffered from having a lot of poor people it also had a bunch of people who had TB which does not look good on paper so the roster wasn't great 11 areas were listed on this survey as blighted areas and of course Chavez Ravine was on the list cited for improper use of land porch street patterns a high proportion of substandard housing poor sanitation juvenile delinquency and the presence of tuberculosis (laughs) I hope so there's a hospital there around this time one of the heroes of the story comes along that's when we meet Frank Wilkinson who was the assistant director of the Los Angeles City Housing Authority and a long defender of Chavez Ravine he grew up in Beverly Hills and he went to UCLA where he joined the Republican Party which is not what it is today Mm -mm. and he was active in it's better. <laughs> More guns. Wider. <laughs> Fewer women. We're wider than we've ever been. He was also very active in the Youth for Hoover, which is Herbert Hoover, not the street. Is it Youth for or Uver Hoover? Uver Hoover. Okay. Yeah, you like it? No. After college, Wilkinson went on a trip around the world and returned with a different perspective on the livelihood after his exposure to extreme poverty. Poor guy. Uh, Wilkinson came from a generation of activists who had seen the depression of the 30s where like public housing was part of a broad movement for social reform. He joined the Housing Authority in 1942 in its like early days when its purpose was to end slum housing in the city. From way before even knowing what Chavez Ravine was, had this like system built in where he wanted to take these bad homes and make them into like public areas where many people could fit in and live well. Like a pr- project. Yeah, like a project, yeah. Hey, listen, it's better than, like, a shack made of, like, plywood. (laughs) You know what? That's not true. I don't know. I've never lived in a project. Well, speaking from someone who's lived in both, who was born in one and raised in the other, they're both great. (laughs) I love them. Can we just spend the rest of this time describing your time in the projects and in a shack home? Under the then-mayor Fletcher Bowren, another reform-minded liberal Republican who was elected in 1938, the LA Housing Authority supported the idea of building decent homes for the poor and low-income families. He also believed in racial integration in the city's developments. A couple of good guys, Bowen and Wilkinson, side by side. So they both have Chavez Ravine in their sights, but the reason why they went for this area, other than the 10 blighted areas, was because out of all these 300 acres, very little of it was actually occupied, so they had thought that they could temporarily displace a smaller population than if they went for another area, in the hopes that they would eventually get them all situated back
back and restored in better homes. So that's really what's going on with their mm-hmm. plans. Then in 1949, another thing happens. President Harry Truman introduced the Fair Deal, which had very good intentions, such as getting all Americans health care. One might un- no, no, never, never. It's never going to happen. No. no, not if my new Republicans will have something to say about it. I mean, if I keep shooting people and there's free health care, then they're going to keep getting fixed. I don't get how it's going to help me and my problem of I have too many bullets. Fair Deal also helped people get a minimum wage raised as well as extending the social security coverage. Do you get social security? I was asking, I'm like asking you. Yeah, I've been getting it for a few years now. Is it too soon? Yeah, it might be too soon. I mean, uh, don't don't stop getting payments. No, I'm not going to say anything. They think I'm dead. Little do they know. This is not all there is. I'm still around. Past 20, there is a life. So included in this fair... I've mostly retired. <laughs> you dress like a very retired person, by the way. <laughs> Just no pal ketchup on my shirt. Included in this Fair Deal Act was the Federal Housing Act of 1949, an initiative for public housing for low-income families. The idea was to take these like ramshackle housings of areas like in Chavez Ravine, tear them down, place them with modern public housing for thousands of low-income families, and that was kind of the push for that. The mayor, Bowron, voted and approved a housing project containing 10,000 new units, and it was to be called Elysian Park Heights. Hmm. Good intentions, right? Everyone has good intentions. We're all going to save the world. You know what they say about the best intentions? No, what do they say about it? They all lived happily ever after. (laughs) I was trying to figure the Willy Wonka line. That's it, right? You know what happened to the boy that got every dream come true? And then he looks so sad. What do they say? Are you going to yell at me again? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear boy. I'm going to shoot you in an elevator into the sky. That's all. He, like, gives him the factory, and then he's like, let's get on this elevator. I don't know if we're going to live past getting through the ceiling. It might cut us to ribbons. Let's find out. You're crazy. Together. This is an emotional roller coaster, <laughs> as well as a real roller coaster. How do they get down? Actually, if you read the books, they go to the moon after. They go into space. I think those Oompa Loompas up there. He's got to place them everywhere. He needs work done good intentions. Everyone's going to save the world. Well, even their execution on paper sounds bad. With the best intentions, of course, city officials would use eminent domain to clear the residents out, pave new roads, then apply for federal funds to build public housings. If you don't know what eminent domain is, (laughs) it's when the government seizes private property to repurpose it for public use. Only after, of course, the private owners accept payment, just compensation. And there isn't any options as far as turning the government down. You can be like, nah, it's cool. Now, sometimes it could be used for good. For example, like if the state needs to build a dam or a lake to provide water to or a high speed rail or a high speed rail they use eminent domain to build to like buy someone out of the land so they could use it for that most of the time though eminent domain is pretty shady i think i was looking for like a really good example of eminent domain abuse when i realized that i was doing research on one basically <laughs> only there was something 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 but basically the idea of public use is vague and you could buy out a bunch of homes and build a high-rise condo in a shopping plaza and raise the property value Ooh, of an area plaza that you know we don't nice. have enough trader joe's in my area I've said it all along. You know what your problem is here? Not enough Trader Joe's. Where am I going to shop at? Sprouts? <laughs> I'm done with Whole Foods. I'm just not going back in there. There's too many actors. And Gelson's is so pedestrian. <laughs> I don't want my soup coughed on by someone who makes 80 grand a year. That's disgusting. <laughs> I want my soup coughed on by at least six figures. So in July of 1950, the city moved forward with the plans to repurpose Chavez Ravine. All residents of Chavez Ravine received letters from the city telling them that they would have to sell their homes in order to make the land available for the proposed Elysian Park Heights. Frank Wilkinson knew how this all sounded, and he understood that the people of Chavez Ravine loved their neighborhood, so he promised them that they would have the first option to move back when construction was completed. Very sweet guy. Elysian Park Heights would include two dozen 13-story buildings and more than 100 
162-story bunkers along with newly rebuilt playgrounds and schools. Some residents of Chavez Ravine resisted their orders to move, and because of that, they were referred to as squatters. Bad word here, okay, friend? Hey. You want to throw that word around? Squat, squat, squat. You are a cop from the 50s. <laughs> you there, what are you squatting on? <laughs> squatters on the land they've been living on for decades, so... Should have called the L.A. squatters. <sighs> Many others in the area didn't think they had a choice in the matter and they relocated. Most received insubstantial or no compensation for their homes and property. Many claimed that they were ripped off and because it was a poor community, when the city came offering them a small amount, they took it. Either the price of being too much to turn down or the fear of being evicted with nothing. Some people claimed that they have gotten only a couple thousand to move on and when they went to find new homes in other areas, they discovered that it was nowhere near enough. <laughs> they were pushed out of their neighborhood where they were comfortable and on top of losing their sense of community, so they were completely like pushed away. Some people, however, stayed there they like refused to leave and then because as i'll say right now there was such a big delay in anything actually happening that they actually yeah. got away with it for like a, a decade <laughs> is that where all those pictures come from we'll talk about that that was actually in like a day <laughs> it was a two-hour span all those pictures came in so by the end of summer of 1952 chavez ravine was for the most part a ghost town at this time many homes were bulldozed right. and ghosts <laughs> they do exist there is an afterlife after a long enough delay, some houses were actually sold. They were auctioned off. Some were set on fire by the local fire department so they could practice what? putting it out. Getting in bed with the enemy, the fire department <laughs> is. So for Frank Wilkinson saw all this happening, and he fought to continue repurposing this land and getting the neighborhood residents back in their homes. Then, good old Joe McCarthy steps in, but steps in nowhere near Los Angeles. <laughs> Something almost completely unrelated happens, and it's very popular. Now this is where everything goes from awful to double awful, and Chavez Ravine gets tangled up in the Red Scare era. Mm. So there are many supporters of federal public housing and many supporters of Chavez Ravine being one of the places that received it because there were so many impoverished Angelinos, but the plan had opponents. The loudest of these voices of opposition were anti-communist supporters who saw public housing projects as a socialist plot against the country and everything we stood for. How dare you protect poor people? Now, McCarthy's main focus of attack on Los Angeles was the film industry, which led to the Hollywood blacklist mm -hmm. consult a future episode. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that his cronies didn't sniff out an opportunity to make a fuss. A public interest group known as CASH, Citizens Against Social Housing, it rules that everything around me dollar dollar bills cash went after the Travis Ravine project and began screaming socialism socialism what do we got socialism when do we want it never so with that group coming after the project the city councils caved in like almost not like nothing on top of that in 1952 Frank Wilkinson who now had become something of a renowned activist faced questioning by the House Un-American Activities Committee Huac. he refused to answer to the Huac whether he was a communist or not so of course he was fired from his job from the housing authority and as assistant to the mayor and sentenced to nine months in jail he was one of the last two people jailed for refusing to answer if he was a communist, which is bold, but being part of the last two still means that you go to prison. <laughs> also funny enough, he was a communist. He was holding the Communist Party. So he deserved it. <laughs> Good for him. I also read someone that Mayor Balrin punched a man in the audience of a crowd who called him a servant of Stalin. <laughs> the mayor. So obviously anti-communist meant business. So the Los Angeles City Council attempted to bail on the public housing contract which they had with the federal authorities but it was too late. The courts ruled the contract legally binding. Then a man running Sounds for- like communist law. Who are we? Servants of Stalin? Uh, <laughs> That's our other podcast. <laughs> it's very political. But it's servant like, you know, a dog is man's servant. So it's again it's Airbud. It's an Airbud affiliate. <laughs> we stay in our Airbud theme, in our Airbud universe. Yeah, the Budiverse. 
So then, a man running for mayor named Norris Paulson used the controversy of Chavez Ravine as part of his political platform. He promised to stop the housing project and other examples of un-American spending. And with that, we had ourselves a newly elected Mayor Paulson, poor people hater. <laughs> he was elected mayor in 1953, and the public housing project's days were numbered. Now, after much negotiation, Mayor Paulson bought land taken from the Chavez Ravine back from federal government at a drastically reduced price, mm. with a stipulation that the land be used for a public purpose. Sure, except privately owned public purpose <laughs> and at some point the land was offered to walt disney as a site for the original disneyland but he turned it down really yeah huh funny huh. during all these delays when nothing was actually going on many people began returning to their houses the ones that weren't bulldozed or they weren't set on fire while some families like i said had never left they referred to themselves as los desterrados the uprooted i probably said it wrong living on this land that they grew up on which was now being taken away from them the, you know right from under them so around this time now the ground is <laughs> let's cut to new york city so by the 50s dun, 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 dun. <laughs> new york city yeah play the uh, mary tyler moore theme song <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> Oh, wait, that's Laverne and Shirley. Yeah, that's Laverne and Shirley, Sorry, that's which Milwaukee. we don't all do I, went, I didn't go far east enough. <laughs> so by the 50s, New York had three teams. It had the Giants, who around the same time moved to San Francisco. It had who the Yankees. The and it had the... With smile, <laughs> Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> I think you're singing the MASH theme song with Laverne and Shirley lyrics. They also had, in New York, the third team, the Brooklyn Dodgers, mm-hmm. everyone's favorite, except not really. They were warmly regarded by their fans as dem bums. <laughs> the fans of the Dodgers and the residents of Chavez Ravine have, like, a common affection for what they love, which is, like, a fondness for shortcomings. <laughs> they were not very good at the time, although they were getting better. You're talking about my dad here, so <laughs> back off. <laughs> I'll spend the second part discussing more about the team's time in Brooklyn, but the team's owner was a Mr. Walter O'Malley. <laughs> O'Malley, along with part owner of the Dodgers' branch, Ricky, were responsible for crossing the color line and getting Jackie Robinson to play in the major league for the mm-hmm. first integrated team. Local boy. Dodgers. Local boy. Sort of. Okay, I'll take it. But we need more. So in New York, the Dodgers played at Ebbets Field, which was built in 1913, but by the 50s, the stadium was falling apart, and O'Malley wanted to change that by building a more modern stadium in Brooklyn where his team could play. His opposition on this matter was the called city- Yankee Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let the Dodgers play there as long as they keep telling us that we're the best. It's in the Bronx, by the way. <laughs> Come on. Uh, let's have a little bit of uh, world awareness here. Ooh, uh, yeah. I've been on the phone trying to get hold of the Bronx meekly, but they're really mean to me. So, you know, I'm waiting to speak to somebody. In Harlem, I have no, I, I don't know how New York works. His opposition on trying to get his own stadium was the city planner, Robert Moses. I don't know if you know this, but Ebbets Field is owned by the city of New York. It's a public use space, so O'Malley had to go to the city if he wanted things done for the stadium. Now, O'Malley and Moses were equally hard-headed, and it drove O'Malley's thought. It's in the, I've read the Bible, I know. <laughs> Let my people go, O'Malley. Go, O'Malley should have been the name of the team. The Brooklyn O'Malley. The Brooklyn O'Malley's. O'Malley had this thought that was starting to grow, that a ball club should own its own stadium and the ground underneath it. Now, here in Los Angeles, <laughs> before the Dodgers, we didn't have a major league team. We had a lot of smaller teams, oh, and baseball had become started. <laughs> do, know. Do you know? Let me start again. Could you tell me an hour and 20 yeah, minutes about 40 it? 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> now that cross-country travel is becoming easier with airplanes, it was had an opportunity for us to get an established team instead of having to grow what, another Angels team, <laughs> taking one of these losers from Wrigley Field. So in 1957, County Supervisor Kenneth Hahn began to scout for potential teams that might be willing to relocate to LA, he comes across Walter O'Malley who was looking for a place to play ball. So they That's met. That's where it came from. <laughs> so they met, and O'Malley laid down his steep demand. He wanted the land and the stadium to be privately owned by the Dodgers. And they said, sure. 
we have a perfect spot for you and the city of los angeles was happy and o'malley was happy and everything was right in the world and no one had any problems with this at all play ball except walt disney walt disney a lot of things were promised to the residents of chavez ravine and they never none of it ever came to fruition the residents of chavez ravine when they found out that the dodgers were going to take this land they were outraged and they were devastated this was going to be you know they they kept promising public use no matter what and now it's like oh we're gonna put a baseball team here you guys cool with that you mind living in like the bleachers or like high bleachers because you guys are poor and Uh, you have to pay for tickets every (laughs) night the land was even worse off than they thought like this whole deal was so much worse than they thought it was going to be and as frank wilkinson explained it we'd spent millions of dollars getting ready for it and the dodgers picked it up for just like a fraction of the price it was a tragedy for the people and from the city it was the most hypocritical thing that could possibly happen to make it a solid piece of awful though in january of 1958 the city voted to move forward with the plan on dodger stadium and honor O'Malley's contract despite the fact that they were calling out the city council and O'Malley for using the land for a purpose that wasn't particularly for public use. They just wanted a baseball team. In particular, the baseball team that had that year won the World Series. They're like, yeah, we want them. That one. Yeah, that the one. shiny one. The shiny one. Yeah, yeah. The one that like never won anything. We want them over here. Play ball. So the battle for Chavez Ravine began and it became a real confrontation on May 8th, 1959 when the LA County Sheriff deputies along with a TV news crew came to Chavez Ravine and forcibly removed people. That, of course, they brought uh, the news. Of course. You guys getting this? The deputies led by Captain Joe Brady, who I'm pretty sure plays football now. Yeah. Yeah. We're armed with a writ of possession for many of the properties. Part of the Brady Bunch. (laughs) The football squad. Yeah, but they didn't have a square for him. Alice took it and she wasn't even a Brady. (laughs) You're gonna go with Alice over me? (laughs) Now, Joe, you just have a big head, friend. We don't have bunk space for you in the house. You know, they never mentioned did they ever mention the Brady Bunch that they both got divorces? In the theme song. I mean, I don't think they said the word divorce. It's like implied. It's implied that they were marriages that didn't work. Yeah. Here's a story of a lovely lady who got a divorce. (laughs) Turn this off. Not in my Christian household. Because I believe in the afterlife. And that's where you're going to see the husband that you picked for the first time, (laughs) the person you lost your virginity to. But I don't believe in a life after divorce. Because I'll kill you. So Captain Joe Brady leads the sheriff deputies, and they're armed with a writ of possession for all the properties. They were met with the opposition, which was about 20 families that were still there. The Arachigas were hurling stones at deputies as movers hustled away with their belongings. Mrs. Glenn Walters was screeching at the deputies and was finally being forcibly ejected from her home, handcuffed, and then taken into a squad car. Other deputies met with a couple older women, and there's a picture of Miss Alice. Alan Martin, who was 73, and her friend Ruth Rayford, who are wielding broomsticks at them. <laughs> I think I've seen that. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's lovely. In one very dramatic instance caught on camera, and there's photos of this too, they carried a woman, Aurora Vargas, as she kicked and screamed. They carried her out. Before they did this, she said they'd have to carry me out. And they did. Everyone yeah. made good on their promise. She was the last person. Finally, to, they made yeah. good on their promise. <laughs> That's actually, a promise we can keep. Grab her feet. She was the last person to be evicted from these houses. And all of this lasted for about two hours. And afterwards, just like when you go to a funeral and if you stay long enough, you can watch these big machines pound dirt into the ground over your loved one. My favorite right. part of a funeral. <laughs> yeah, really get them in there right after evicting people. he might come back. <laughs> We're starting to think there might be an afterlife. So please cover it. Cement that sucker. So right after evicting everybody from their homes, the homes were bulldozed. At least they took them out first. Hey, sweet. <laughs> that was very considerate of them. So later, just to stick to the city, and good for them, members of the Archegas family and the Augustine family returned and lived on the property to protest the eviction <laughs> and the bulldozing, and they lived under a tent. And they were the first players to be drafted by the Dodgers. You got the spirit. New, the L.A. Dodgers. You mean them bums? I don't play for them. <laughs> so now, the Chavez Ravine. Serif still here? Because <laughs> I got a Serif's jersey. You don't even have to give me anything. Oh, where are the sand Serifs? We're different. So now that Chavez Ravine was truly vacant, it was one 
one of the highest peaks in LA, Stone Quarry mm-hmm. Hills, was to be reshaped and much of Chavez Ravine was to be demolished. I took a Chicano Studies class and we, we talked about oh, this. here we go. Uh, Going on about his Chicano Studies class again. Hey, listen. I was told in my class not to take that from you. <laughs> <laughs> that you're to blame for everything. <laughs> Apparently, I'm not apologizing. <laughs> I almost refused to. Apparently, there's an entire school intact underneath the Dodger Stadium parking lot. Huh. Yeah, intact. Again, get the shovel. School's in session. Pause it. <laughs> my God. Everything. So there were still apples on the desk for the teacher. It was delicious. The bathroom, you see, works. We have to be in detention on Saturday. <laughs> we were just too loud. Should have got there right when the bell rang. But <laughs> 80 years ago. <laughs> so construction crews had the task of building a baseball stadium in this massive hills. To do this, they literally had to move mountains to create this space. And not only did <laughs> the they have to do... The gods! <laughs> we got Odin. We got Zeus. Aquaman, for some reason, too. I don't know what the deal with that is. You mean the... The judge of the waters. The judge of the waters. Yeah, judge of the, <laughs> got elected to do. So not only did they have to deal with the ravine and the steep hills, the elevation on some ranges was like 100 feet above sea level. They also had to like deal with winding roads, gullies, gushes, and washes, which is really crazy to think about like that area and how like natural... Like it sounds like a meadow. Like it's <laughs> like the natural surroundings. I'm like, blow it all up. Let's put a hot dog stand here. Martinez Meadow. That would have that worked perfectly yeah. any martinez is around here <laughs> for around 31 months between 1959 to 1962 342 construction workers moved 8 million cubic yards of earth to reshape the area to fit the God. stadium they were filling gullies they were flattening hills and moving dirt all over the city apparently i've heard from my informant i don't know if this is true but i like to think it is true these hills they were moved to areas along east la and like in culver city and they were used to make parks and if you go to east la there are a lot of parks on hills i'm wondering if that's true i don't know they all say mm-hmm. i've heard that that those, oh these are all the dirt from when they made Dodger Stadium. Sometimes I believe my informant and then I open my mouth like, that's crazy. I like his stories. It's my dad, not my boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Finally. (laughs) Oh, I get it now. (laughs) Answer all the questions. They used one steep terrace that was already kind of shaped like a bowl and they used it as the main grandstand structure. Sometimes I wonder. You know it's the same person, right? You know that I've we like like Chinatown a lot. So when did you start dating your dad? A couple of years ago. This is a new podcast. <laughs> WTP with the Paul starring I want the Air Mary. I want the janitor to come in and you're like, Hey, is there an afterlife? Hey, is it okay if you date your dad? <laughs> They just closed the door. There's a no and a yes in there. <laughs> there was one steep terrace that was already kind of like shaped like a bowl. So they used it to make that the grandstand structure. And they located the stands on the slope, which they fit into like a U-shaped hill. The northern side of the rock and sandstone hill was brought down and reshaped to fit like an amphitheater shape. And benches were cut into the slopes to create and support a foundation for the stadium. It's kind of hard to describe, but if I show you pictures, you'll kind of get it. They start shaping like benches and they start building it because like they, te- they start tearing up the dirt. Tearing or tearing like making tears of them like the indian who saw the trash and he hit one tear they teared the dirt he was italian so the grand like that italian who saw the <laughs> united states being littered on and he cried no the the hot italians or whatever the hell they were called what's it the, the baseball team name that you the sons of italy that's what it is the hot italian, <laughs> hot italian <laughs> is it okay if i date my hot italian dad <laughs> my hot italian dad is my favorite romantic comedy <laughs> the grandson has these like epic tears which are all cantilevered and it was built on 78 pre-cast benches. To build the stadium, they used 
thousand cubic yards of concrete and 13 million pounds of reinforced steel to assemble all of these pieces they imported a hundred and fifty thousand dollar crane from germany which could lift the pieces while this crane was here it was the largest crane in north america <laughs> and i'm sure someone bragged about it see that crane over there <laughs> largest one in the uh, whole country what do you think about that uh, and canada some parts of mexico too the total cost of this was close to 25 million dollars and has the capacity to hold 56,000 baseball fans the stadium i mean i've been going there since i was a kid it's really close it's actually quite excellent if you remove the fact that it was built on all these people's homes <laughs> i don't think it gets enough credit for how modern it looks it has like a very streamlined look to it with its cantilevered construction of the tiers and the layout and everything it has like a really good look the designer is a man named emil prager who was a former navy captain who served in both world wars one and two and had developed the original oh, those two co- the which, couple of world wars which two world wars did he serve in? Eh, fought in a couple of world wars which ones one two uh yeah those were good this uh prager fellow developed the original concrete floating breakwater which i had to google to know what it was but it's those concrete rectangle slabs you see at dams that kind of just like break the flow of water oh yeah yeah great job a rectangle made of concrete he also had a hand in designing the renovation of both the white house and central library in downtown oh look at that him and o'malley go back about like 10 years before doing dodger stadium they're trying to develop a new stadium since they were in New York. Their first collaboration was creating the Holman Stadium in Dodger Town in Vero Beach, Florida, which is where the Dodgers train. I think Dodger Stadium, I read, is now like the second oldest the baseball. The third stand. oldest standing baseball. Is the third or second? Because I think Angel Stadium is like the third oldest one. Oh, really? Okay. I think it's like Chicago, Dodger Stadium, and Angel yeah. whatever. Yeah. Angel <laughs> Heaven. You mean the Pearly Gates? That's what they play. <laughs> the Pearly <laughs> Gates. And the trip to Dodger Stadium as well is, is, is very beautiful. There are palm trees lining much of it. San Gabriel Mountain are With in the sunglasses background. on. Sunglasses on. You're wearing your shorts. No, the palm trees have sunglasses on. They're wearing suntan lotion. They were weird looking. <laughs> but just on the tip of the fronds. <laughs> Why do people w- do that? A big that? white zinc tip. Neon green shorts that look like they were made by the highlighter company. <laughs> I think personally, the parking lot actually has the best view of the city, in my opinion. Better than like Griffith Observatory. The, the view from hmm. from the Dodger parking lot, it's it's incredible. I, that's what I think. stance. Write in your complaints about that opinion. <laughs> on April 10th, 1960, Dodger Stadium officially opened and 2.7 million people attended the first game. What? Next episode, the first game. Oh, oh. what a cliffhanger. So I used to... Oh, he's still going. <laughs> it looks like he got off the cliff. All right. No reason to turn in next month. A cliffhanger. Oh, it's a dropper. We lost him. It's all right. There's an afterlife. It's funny, like, thinking back on what I used to think about Chavez Ravine, because I used to think that, like, Walter O'Malley was the villain of all this, and I thought, like, his move to build on Chavez Ravine was deliberate, but really, though, he was just a guy in New York struggling for his own thing, and he had, like, no idea till he got here what was going on, and by that time, it was so far into, like, oh, well, they don't have it anymore? <laughs> it's confusing the situation to come into. I'm sure, like, when he got here, it was sort of like, well, I don't care about them, <laughs> but, like, he didn't have a hand in them, like, a vic- like he wasn't, he didn't go yeah. with Joe Brady, like, get out of here! <laughs> yeah, the news crew is there for that yeah exactly <laughs> and plus like he moved all these players to the west he can't be like well i know that you guys changed your lives to be here so but these poor people want to stay here sorry mike piazza you have to go home <laughs> he's been playing for a very long time <laughs> what's the name of the guy in snl who was there for like 40 years who played bill clinton he's the daryl daryl hammond of <laughs> the Dodgers. If I had to sum up the villains in this story, Joe McCarthy, the Citizens Against Social Housing, and Norris Paulson, who all had their own agendas and pushed to get areas like this wiped off the map. Capitalism. All their things stalled the project long enough for people to get distracted with the intent of Chavez Ravine and its residents, and like once time had passed for long enough, they could be like, oh, we don't remember anything about this big housing unit. Let's build a shakies. 
And I feel bad like thinking That's what about should have been there instead of Dodger Stadium. If I had a sum world's up world's largest shakies. A shakies said it's like eighty three acres. <laughs> Plenty of room for mojo potatoes. I ordered my pizza half an hour ago. Yeah, it's still on its way. <laughs> this is an eighty three acre shakies. So I think if I had to sum it up as far as the heroes go, people who refuse to leave their homes, good for them, even though they were paid money and they were kind of squatting a little bit. I'll say that. Frank Wilkinson, I have a big heart for another hometown hero. And I really feel bad because like there are a lot of quotes where he shows actual regret and he calls it like the tragedy of his life. He like takes full responsibility for what happened. I wanted to give you guys good homes. I'm sorry. Try to do the right thing. Try to do the right thing. All that being said, I love Dodger Stadium. Even though people who lived in Travis Green Sand is like dancing on a grave. <laughs> Next month's episode, will Greg or won't Greg marry Dodger Stadium if he in fact loves it so much? Here we go. I bought the ring. It's it's really heavy. <laughs> it's big. I bought all the areas surrounding <laughs> it and it, it's already in the ring <laughs> and you're paving it all with gold very expensive i'm committed to this relationship i brought us to dodger stadium a little bit of a yeah a little, little bit, bit of, of a, a cliffhanger a little bit of a cliffhanger so we're right at we're right at the little baby dodgers peeking its head through the womb will they win the first game in los angeles who knows find out in a month tune in next week for when i do all yes the research or <laughs> no it was a tie third option <laughs> cliffhanger so next month is going to be history of the dodgers, dodgers continuation of that and then a mystery sport that is also baseball is ending next month another sport is starting next month we're going to talk about that leave a little bit of mystery for them figure mm-hmm. out on your own but you might want to put your little baseball bats away might want to put on a sweater <laughs> yep Back Win- winter's coming put on your shorts winter's coming <laughs> <laughs> put on a slightly heavier pant winter's coming found that the hatches on your surfboard winter's coming <laughs> that is basically first second and third base of the baseball history of LA we're on third the bases are loaded who's up to bat <gasps> Kirk Mike Piazza William <laughs> <laughs> Frawley he got wind of it so next month we'll take you home and uh, finish up the tale of what's happening who are these Dodgers who are these they? mysterious Dodgers what are they gonna do here are they artful so that's been us this month episode 21 congratulations everybody have a little drink yeah a little a little drink maybe a dirty shirley maybe go to the longest bar have yourself a pina colada which is spanish do you like pina coladas yeah what about walks in the rain i don't see how the two are related but yeah when do you like to make love around like midnight 130 interesting what's your dad's number (laughs) 69 69 69 69 why I only understand binary because I'm a robot, remember? That bleeds. I forgot about that. Wait, you weren't the robot that bleeds. That was announcer bot. You don't bleed. So leave us a review on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, LA Meekly. Instagram, we put a lot of pictures up there. Yeah, LA underscore Meekly. Tumblr, of course. LAMeekly.tumblr.com. Facebook. We're there. Yeah. You know, it's not that hard to find us. And to any new listeners, thanks to Hidden Los Angeles. Oh, yes. Mentioning us. Hopefully we got some new listeners. I hope you still have faith in us after <laughs> listening to this because we have faith in the afterlife now. So I think you should have a little faith in us. All right. That's been yet another episode of L.A. Meekly rediscovering our faith in an afterlife since 2013. God? <laughs> yeah, keep that in. Hello, boys. Let's stop, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>